Happy holidays to all of you from the Seneca Podcast in Sub China. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sub China. Sub China is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for Sub China Access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from Seattle, Washington. Alas, Jeremy Goldcorn was unable to join me for this jaunt to the Pacific Northwest. Today, I have the privilege of chatting with Yeri Reichel, one of the most admired venture capitalists on the China tech scene. I can think of almost nobody in the business, and probably even fewer Americans, who've been in the thick of it for as long as Gary has been, and who've been able to not just watch the sector develop, but actually participate in and really meaningfully shape its development. Gary's best known as the founding managing partner of Teeming Ventures, which launched in 2006, and has amassed a truly stunning portfolio. I think they've got 30 plus unicorns. Over 30 exits, and if I'm not mistaken, something like four billion dollars under management. I think it's 12 funds, seven that are U.S. dollar denominated, and five that are RMB. And it has backed companies that are household names to anyone even glancingly familiar with tech in China. Gary's involvement in VC in China goes back much further, and his perspectives on China extend well beyond just tech investing. So,、uh, technology being so much at the heart of the troubles that now beset the U.S.-China relationship, it is a perfect time to have Gary with us on Seneca. Gary Rochelle, welcome to the show, and what I'd like to have you. You know, thank you, Kaiser. My pleasure. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit about your life before venture capital.、Uh, so you worked at uh, at Intel, uh, at uh, Cisco, a couple other companies, I think, before you joined SoftBank, right? Yeah, that's correct. So I can date myself by telling <laughs> you I I tested the first memory chips that ever went in an IBM PC. Oh wow! Back in 1980-81 for Intel, and、uh, also tested their first microprocessors. So back back in back in the days when、uh, you know a, a disk drive took up about 90 pounds and、uh, a huge amount of space, and we were testing memories that were advanced at the time, like 64 kilobit、wow. dynamic RAMs. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable! I mean, Christ. It's just it's I I can remember I mean I had an IBM PC Junior when I was、yep. a freshman in college that was in 1984 and I mean it was a, a marvel of its time I remember my my first, in 99 I sat down working for my first internet company I was impressed because my hard drive was a one G hard drive <laughs> so、um, wh- when did you actually move to China. So we moved to China. My wife and I and our family moved to China at the very beginning of 2005. Okay. okay. And the history behind that was that in 2003 we were traveling and we went to Hearst Castle,、uh-huh. and we watched this video of William Randolph Hearst Jr. and how his parents, his mother in particular, had taken him out of school when he was 12 years old, took him over to Europe for several years, and how that impacted him. And so that night at dinner we thought we should do that. So、um, I spent a year unwinding my SoftBank venture capital activity, and、uh, Yuka planned a trip 
for Europe for six months and China for six months. So beginning in 2005, we moved to China, and it was supposed to be for six months and wound up being there for 12 years. <laughs> what was it about? I mean, they, they grabbed you right away. I mean, this is 2000. I mean, it was the golden age for, for China. I think that if there's any year to have gone there to have really easily fallen in love with the place it would have been in those few years before the olympics it was a it was a good time but what really hit me was if i go back a few years before that in 1999 i helped chauncey shea set up softbank china venture ah, capital okay. <clears throat> and then in 2000 um a joint venture i created at cisco um cisco negotiated softbank's position out bought softbank out of that position softbank had been one of the partners so i i ran a fund in china from the end of 2000 until the end of 2001 called softbank asia infrastructure yeah saif i remember and, that one. and hired a gentleman named andy yan to run that right so that. when i moved to china between those two funds and being the first investor in fund bows Feng Bo's uh, fund, Seiyuan. Yeah. So I actually had three funds that I'd already been working in and had familiarity with when I moved to China. So China was not new to me. But what you could tell was that it was going to institutionalize. It was under a billion dollars of market of uh, venture capital available annually at that point. And you could just tell because of the people that were showing up, but also just the opportunity in the market that it was going to explode. Feng Bo is a familiar name to anyone who's who's familiar with the, the VC scene in China, but him and his brother, Feng Tao, uh, give us a little bit on, on who they are for our listeners who, who aren't. Yeah, Feng Bo was um, involved in setting up another fund called Chengwei with Eric uh, Lee, you know, several years before that. So he was he was at uh, Robertson Stevens before right. that. Good friend with Sandy Robertson, and so he was one of the early guys to jump in and do early stage tech. His brother Feng Tao focused more on traditional industries. You know, pr- kind of more like a private equity investor. Uh, um, but both of them wound up being very successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the, I think um, in the first internet company that I was involved in, Feng Tao was actually an investor. Hmm. Well, Feng Bo then wound up marrying Deng Xiaoping's granddaughter. Right, so, right. right yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much in, in the red royalty there. Um, when Qi Ming launched in 2006, um, that was 2006, is right? That's, that's right, right? Well, it launched November 2005, and we closed our first fund in January 2006. Uh, okay. Um, no, did you start off with an RMB fund, or did, was it just a U.S. dollar fund? Just a U.S. dollar fund. Okay. Well, I don't, just, I'm, just so that people understand, what is the importance? What what? What deals are you uh, kept out of if you don't have an RMB-denominated fund? So there's two things. There's a restricted list that you're not allowed to invest in. So media companies, for right. example. Um, a dollar investor could not invest in a Chinese media company that was on broadcast TV. Right. Internet media, at the time, music and uh, some short-form videos and so on, you could invest in that. It was complicated. So they used yeah, the, to, the, the, yeah, the yeah. whole, the whole complicated situation. They had a VIE, it was called variable right. interest entity structure. So you had an intermediary in between you, but you could invest in those. But anything that was going to go on television or in cinema, you know, foreigners could not invest. Um, you could not invest in a number of industries that had any kind of military, you know, application. Right. Um, so, and you couldn't invest in banks. You couldn't invest in many of the financial services um, that you would be investing in today, for example. Right. So not all of it has quite opened up yet. I mean, it's still technically not uh, – you're not able to invest in media companies technically yet. Not, no, and not I wouldn't expect you'll be able to in the no. near future. Although financial services has opened up considerably. Financial services has opened up considerably for Chinese players. Um, it took, I think, uh, PayPal – you know, nine years of negotiation to actually, you know, be able to start 
uh, you know, thinking about China, took right. MasterCard a very, very long period of time. So the Chinese definitely dragged their feet. That was one of the biggest obligations they had under WTO that right. they did not fulfill. And now it looks like, I mean, it may be a part of this 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 deal finally at last, yeah. It, it looks like it's trending in that direction. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about Ximing and, and some of the portfolio companies. I, I mentioned in the introduction that, that some of them are real household names. What were some of the investments that you've been proudest of, not, not just from the perspective of successful exits, but the founding team, the, the technology, and maybe the product and its impact on, on, on society? Yeah, I can go through a few of those. Yeah, I think um, one of the ones in Fund One was a company called TigerMed. Right. So when we started doing healthcare, which was very unusual in 2006 for a venture fund to have a focus on healthcare, it was all TMT back then. It was yeah. all TMT, and uh, the focus on healthcare came about because China was spending about two and a half percent of GDP on healthcare. It couldn't go down. So this wasn't rocket science. This was just understanding some market dynamics. Second thing is only one new drug had been approved. One novel compound had been approved for release the prior year in China. So there was going to be this huge unmet need. But one of the requirements was you were going to have to be able to establish trust in the clinical trial process. Um, People don't widely know that in 2006 or 2007, they executed the head of the China FDA. I do remember, yeah. Because the system was so corrupt. And so... You needed to establish trust, and you needed to establish a uh, an entire system of the testing, the analytics, the reporting that quintiles and U.S. companies were very good at, but Chinese firms had not were not. TigerMed was the first company to go in with a founding uh, CEO, uh, Dr. Ye, who had been at Roach, and his whole focus was on building a world class clinical trial company. Um, so we invested in that company at $30 million pre in 2008. That company today is worth $7 billion. Mm-hmm. And it is the dominant you know, player in the Chinese market in terms of clinical trials. So it's, it's very rewarding when you participate in something. You have a strategy and you participate in the building blocks leading up to that entire market. Uh, forming. And TigerMed's a good example of that. Um, another early stage company was Xiaomi. You know, yeah. Xia- Xiaomi was, was fun. That's one you know, that was certainly very successful. I would, um, I think what isn't understood as well about Xiaomi is when that deal came into us, um, Lei Jun's original plan was not for a phone. Right. It was actually for software right. that was going to work across all the phones. And it was really my partner, Dwayne Kwong, who told him that we would invest a small amount in the Series A or the seed round. But if he wanted to be successful, he was going to have to do a reference design for his own phone. And he came back five months later, and that's when we led the Series A in the, in the deal. But it, it was really Dwayne's contribution to helping Lei Jun understand without a reference design for that software that that model was never going to work. I mean, because the thing about Xiaomi in the early days, I mean, Lei Jun and, and Lin Bin were obviously really impressive guys. Uh, but they didn't have experience in the, all three of the areas that ended up being sort of the core things for Xiaomi, which were not just software, which was what they were. You know, they, they, they did have mastery of, but hardware and, and also the Internet, right? I mean, because they were an Internet play and neither of them had really extensive experience in that way. 
so they, they, it wasn't until they came back with this reference design for a handset that you, you thought, okay, we're in. And a team of people that really had built phones. And so, because at the time, there were a, a large number of second-tier players in China that had never really gotten a great deal of traction in the, yes. phone, in the phone business. That's what makes, me, it makes it seem sort of counterintuitive to me that that's sort of the razor-thin margin piece of it. That's where there were a lot of pretty conspicuous failures. For a while in the early 2000s, you, you, there was that moment where you had – Chinese handset makers past the Nokias and the Motorola's, and there were companies that you've never heard of anymore, like Bird. You remember Bird? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there, 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 there were a few things you don't hear about anymore. But the genius of Lei Jun and, uh, and Li Bin was that they had the model to go direct. They were not going to go through traditional channels. They were not going to wed themselves to the Chinese telecom providers. They felt that they could actually sell the phones direct to consumer huh. without building physical you know, infrastructure. And it turned out they were right. Yeah. Um, and that wound up being very, very, uh, obviously very successful. The other thing they did is as they built out the, what's called the Xiaomi ecosystem of 50 some odd companies is they would go to all the suppliers and they'd negotiate based on, you see what we did with Xiaomi? We want pricing on unit one as if we'd shipped a million units. So we want a forward price to where there were a million of these already in the marketplace. No one had ever done that. Apple had never done that. No electronics firm had actually ever taken that idea and and just pushed it. Just in, hit the market in, as though they were already producing at scale. Exactly. Okay. And so they were able to do that with 30, 40 different products, all based on the success of the phone. And that was really that was really a very unique. And uh, I think it was a lot of insight from late June in terms of what the supplier supply chain was like for phones at that particular point in time. Xiaomi's had a couple of tough years, though. Um, you still have a lot of faith in that company, though. I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, part of it is every company – Who's you know? If you look at, I mean, it's it's hard for some of the more recent companies. They haven't necessarily had a tough year. Google hasn't had a tough year in terms of earnings, for you know, for example. But this will all come over some period of time. You know, ten years ago, Microsoft was dead. Now, Microsoft is the most valuable company on the planet. Satya yeah. is CEO of the year by every major publication. Apple's been left for dead twice, you know, along the way, and now it's you know, it's only the second most valuable company in the world. So, I think we need to be careful. You have to look at the team. And you have to look at the capabilities in that organization. And I think their model works. You know, Huawei as a competitor has not been able to build any kind of social glue around the Huawei products the way that Xiaomi has. I think over time, Xiaomi's model will uh, be successful. Xiaomi started with that social glue, really. I mean, with it did. there was always a buzz around them. Um, there, there was always just sort of a... a kind of fanaticism around certain users who, who used the MIUI uh Anyway, and then also also just one other company because at that point in time the the market was quite immature, so deals were coming in from unusual places. Mm-hmm. So um, one of our friends one of our friends at school our, where our kids were going to school, which was Concordia, um, approached my wife and said, "Oh, you should meet you know, meet uh, my husband." So we went meeting uh, Zhang Yi Hong. So Yi Hong told me about a company in Beijing called Gan and Li, which uh-huh. is now China's largest. Uh, insulin provider and uh, diabetes drug uh, provider in China. And so you just never knew where something was going to come from that would wind up being interesting. 
Oh, that's a good bet. I mean, given the, the massive increase in the, the rate of type 2 diabetes that we're seeing. Largest market in the world by yeah. a significant margin. It's nuts. Um, since you came back to the States, you've been focused uh, on healthcare, and uh, you launched a fund with about $300 million under management that's dedicated to that sector. Um, clearly, the demographics of not just China, but also of the U.S. are, are very attractive. Uh, what market is the focus for the portfolio companies of this new healthcare tech fund? Yeah, so there's so we've raised two funds. One for one was one twenty, fund two is one eighty. Okay, so together three, right. so together three hundred million. Um, so the focus is primarily therapeutics, uh-huh. um, a little bit of devices, a little bit of digital health. Um, we don't do the service investments. So Qiming China is big enough and has enough capital to do large scale service investments, but we won't pursue those. Okay. You know, in the U.S. What's happened is that. As China and the U.S. have started to agree to share data with each other, not individual patient data, but the aggregate trial data, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, a U.S. entrepreneur can bring a product to the market in China nearly as quickly as they could do in the United States. And in five years ago, that made, it made no sense for a startup here to look at the Chinese healthcare market because by the, it took, you had to go through four or five years to get through your trial. Then you started over to do the trial in China. Right. And so no one paid attention. Now you can take phase one trial date in the U.S. China accepts it. You can then recruit faster, recruit more cheaply in China. And you can actually wind up having China and U.S. trials running in parallel. So that's a significant difference over what uh, what the market was like before. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you also have... I mean, China has more genetic uh, engineering trials, CRISPR trials, uh, cell therapy trials, more trials in those sectors going on now than the United States does. And that's also a significant change. If you look again, as I said earlier, 2005, there was one novel compound approved for release in China. Last year, there were 300. Wow. So this is is just a phenomenal, you know, uh, very rich you know, ecosystem now in terms of innovation occurring in China. Are you doing any investments in drug discovery, though? We are. So we have several investments in drug discovery in China, also several here in the United States. What we find is, again, 10 years ago, you could invest in the U.S., not pay much attention to China. There really was nothing there that would be directly competitive. Now, you better understand what's happening in China. So that if it's cell therapy, you need to understand what's happening there before you make investments in the U.S. Because mm. your competitors are no longer simply the U.S. domestic competitors. Right. Same thing on devices. I would submit to you that China on the device level in many areas is ahead of the United States, certainly from a cost pers- t- cost and time to market perspective. So if you're doing investments in devices in the U.S., you really need to understand What's happening in that market is happening in China. So you now have two markets that, as they're starting to converge, it helps the U.S. team because of all the knowledge based on the Qiming China team, and vice versa. So China's doing a lot of work in CRISPR, Cas9 stuff. I mean, we're we're all aware of you know some of the more controversial work that they (laughs) do. But I mean, it 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 makes me wonder: is it in some way the less the less restrictive? ethical environment in China that allows it to do so. I mean, I'm thinking about things like um, gene therapy research or stem cell research. I mean, the the limited number of stem cell lines that are available here in the United States because of of Bush administration era regulations that have been passed on it, China doesn't suffer from quite the same number of restrictions. They can use embryonic stem cells a little more. I mean, is that giving them an advantage? Yes, it's a a huge advantage for China. So the two things that they can do, so as you mentioned, stem cell access to novel uh, uh, cell 
you know, cell bases. Number two, access to a very large genetics pool. Yeah. Where the they can share that much more much more easily than the U.S. can among different companies and among different uh, uh, different operations. So to me, you can say, well, they're getting ahead because we don't have the same ethical concerns. Well, it really they do have ethical concerns. And the part of the problem with U.S.-China relations now is no one's really talking about the kind of standards and the kind of uh, uh, guardrails we need to have in place around some of this development. Absolutely. So as China, China, the thing that people get wrong about China is the speed and how quickly they iterate. And so they're taking these technologies and just cycling through them at, at an incredible speed. And that's a huge advantage when you're, in, when you're in emerging markets or emerging technology. That's a huge advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about some of the trends that we're seeing right now uh, in venture here in the U.S. and whether the same sorts of things are happening in China. So there is this trend, for example, here toward these mega funds. You know, there's been uh, Sequoia, Index, Lightspeed. Um, they, they have these huge, huge funds um, in the, the tens of billions of dollars. Are we seeing the same sorts of things happening in China? And the other big big thing is we're seeing seed rounds right now in the United States that that are are quite large that are you know in the the uh, coming up on on seven digits no i'm sorry eight digit seed rounds which is it seems like hardly a seed round i, I guess the joke in in silicon valley is these are mango seed or, or avocado <laughs> seed rounds <laughs> well i think there's no term in private equity that hasn't been bastardized in some form over the last <laughs> 10 years i mean if you think about but if you think one example you chose was sequoia sequoia's growth fund came out of china Right. So when you ask, it's the same thing happening in China. Well, Absolutely. It, it actually went the other way, right? And it came from China. Right? It came from China. So when you look at the large growth funds, um, and in fact, what you have to remember in China, there's really no buyout market. So when KKR, Bain, Carlyle, when they're talking about really big uh, funds for China, they're not talking. They're talking about private equity, some venture, but primarily private equity funds. They're not talking about buyout funds. Okay. Um, I think you know, Chi Ming's fund, next fund, last fund was nearly a billion dollars, nine hundred something million. The next mm-hmm. fund will be around the same size. Um, GGV has a billion dollar fund. Sequoia, yeah. we already talked about. So there's a, there's already a handful of funds that are in that billion dollar you know category, and I think that. So in, in the mega fund, things happen faster in China. So China, any any trend that's occurring in the U.S., China is going to catch up to it quickly and probably surpass it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think we're I think we're going to be in that that uh, period of time for a long time in terms of the large scale of capital available. Maybe the one sector where China isn't outstripping the United States right now in some ways um, would be in enterprise. And um, there's still a lot of B2B activity here in the United States, and you don't see nearly as much of it in China. Uh, when is China actually going to – I mean, and what's what's stopping China from developing a really robust B2B? So it's a really good question. The What's happened over time, if you look at why the U.S. tech market evolved the way it did, stuff was put into enterprise and then went to the consumer. China, just like it skipped landlines uh-huh. and went directly to seller, China pretty much skipped entered the entire enterprise software and went directly to direct to consumer, these huge consumer companies, Alibaba, Tencent, so on. Well, now the enterprises have a problem. They're being thrown data in such vast quantities and such speed, the internal systems they have in place can't support them. Right. So almost every large enterprise in China started with a fairly rudimentary 
set of tools, and they built highly customized solutions for their particular applications. I was on the board of the Bank of China Investment Company, which is a BlackRock Bank of China joint venture, and they couldn't use the audit function in the software because it slowed down the transactions so much they actually couldn't process their transactions because everything was so uh, heavily customized. So now you have a situation where who do you go to in that market to install these next generation solutions? The skill set within the firm, the enterprise software skill set or the management soft, management of the uh, systems is really quite poor. Mm. And that's a huge level of, inf- of uh, infrastructure that needs to be built. It, the market opportunity is going to be there on enterprise, but there's a whole level of project management, product management, and internal systems management that really needs to be developed for China to be successful with that. It's a huge uh, – I think it's a very large risk in terms of how the enterprises in China will evolve. Is it an opportunity for American enterprise software companies, though? Have they really been able to fill in that vacuum? I think American software, American enterprise software companies are largely not welcome in China. I mean, Oracle, uh, because Oracle was a uh, has been there for a very long time. The, the data, database software companies were able to have an installed base, but nothing like it should be given right. the scale of the market. Uh, PeopleSoft, uh, Salesforce.com, these firms. They're not really present in China. No, what they have is they have their large enterprise customers that right. have licensed. But those are MNCs products. mainly, right? So Other if you MNCs. look at uh, you look at SOEs and you look at the large private Chinese firms, they're going to roll their own, and uh, hmm. that's it's an ex- it's a great opportunity for Chi Ming because we're investing in China for China. But if you're trying to invest in China, bring enterprise software companies to China, or invest in the U.S. and bring those companies to China, I think that's going to be very difficult. So one VC that I talked to once told me that he, he doesn't think that American companies, American VCs, have the same kind of appetite for deep tech, for material science plays, or, or for silicon that, that he's seen in, in China, that China has more of an appetite for that. Would, would you think, is that, is that a fair characterization? No, I think that's, I actually think it's back, that's backwards. Okay. Um, if you think about the clean tech sector, material science sector in the last, uh, 15 years, the U.S. blew up $19 billion investing in clean tech. Right. Um, that was much of it was very, very hardcore technology and material science. Um, one of the things that we studied was where does risk capital really come from in China? So if you go back to 1998 till 2018, there was over $40 billion that was invested in what you and I would consider risk capital, mm-hmm. i.e. Series A, seed rounds and things were could, could fail for technical reasons, right. not just business model reasons. That's a good proxy for, yeah, for 87, 87% of, by our calculation, 87% of that money was dollar-based. Wow. Virtually none of it's RMB-based. Right, right, right. So the RMB funds have not yet become risk capital oriented. That, that, that proportion must be shifting in more recent years, though. It's shifting in more recent years, but still not not to the point where if you suddenly, if you suddenly eliminated U.S. dollar VCs from the equation at all and expected the RMB market to fund that, to fund that early stage risk capital, it could not substitute for that today. Yeah, I, I believe it. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the, the, the trends that we've seen in VC in China and whether there is now influence in the other direction, just like what you suggested uh, earlier with the size of these gigantic funds. Um, what, what sorts of, of things are happening 
that are they're starting in China, starting in the VC community in China, and and that are being now adopted, learned from Sand Hill Road by Sand Hill Road. Well, I think payments is an area which you saw with Alibaba, you saw with Tencent, the ability to literally live in China for months at a time and never have anything but your phone, never yeah. have a wallet, never have a credit card. Um, I think there's a lot more activity now around that you know here in the U.S. than there had before had been before. I think the gaming infrastructure the the entire what, what they did the free play yeah free, uh, free to play, play game for, system yeah. you know 20 years ago in the states that didn't exist at all and mm-hmm, china started mm-hmm. it because they couldn't import the console games from microsoft right. sony or nintendo <laughs> and the result has been a hundred billion dollar incredibly profitable hundred billion dollar business um so I think those kind of models are influencing uh, the U.S. pretty dramatically. What I think we're going to see, and let's see if I go down this the right way, you're starting to see with Musical.ly and ByteDance, right. TikTok. I mean, that was a company invested, started in China, but for the American market, but has really been juiced um, because of its tie into the ByteDance you know, infrastructure. Yeah. And so is that the whole- a fluke though? I mean, I, I can't really point to, I mean, let's, let's leave the hardware players out, out of it, but there are not other consumer facing uh, over the top companies that have done anything close to that in international markets, especially the United States. Right. I mean, I was working at Baidu when they they made all these forays into Brazil and the Middle Japan, East. And they tried to, they tried yeah, to do was, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all an abysmal failure. Well, so there's a long philosophical discussion that underpins why some of the Chinese firms have been successful or not as they go overseas. You're correct. I would say ByteDance stands out or TikTok stands out as one that has gone over the top and has been very success, very successful. Tencent has not been no. usually successful in the U.S. Alibaba has been trying for a decade now, not terribly successful in the U.S. Um, I think part of it is the models that those companies operate under. So if you look at a tra- you, you look at these models um, comparing the U.S. player versus the Chinese player, if you look at uh, Amazon is the closest proxy for Alibaba. They're sure. both tra- they're both transaction based, right? And then they're big big markets now, marketplaces. And, and, and they're Amazon's both, mostly a market now. Yeah, exactly. And they're both and they're both roughly equivalent in their scale. Um, start you know, with strong bases. If you look at Tencent compared to Facebook, Facebook's 97, 98% ad base. Tencent's 95% transaction based. Right. Those are totally different models. Yeah. So I think the interesting question is not whether or not the Chinese firms will be successful in the U.S. The interesting question is for every other developing market in the world, which model, which model is going to yeah. be successful? I am. I would have a bias that I think the Chinese model, based upon uh, if, lo- if you're looking at lower per capita income countries, I think the Chinese model is a model that's going to be successful because you're paying for transaction. You don't have that intermediary adverter- advertising pl- uh, uh, layer to waste. Hmm. You know, frankly, in a lot of developing markets, there's just not enough money in that market to support those firms. Where there's transaction-based, it's all value-based. I paid this, I got this. And I think that those models are going to be very successful. The other thing, though, that is is that I mean, I think this is maybe too glib to be true, but it feels like sometimes the very things that make them successful in China are the same reasons why they don't they don't succeed. All. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, a product like WeChat or Weixin. Uh, why is it so useful in China? Because there is just such a, a thoroughly developed ecosystem for it. I mean, there, there have been so many relations that, that have been forged on the ground that it, it's hooked into the banking system and payments. It's hooked into all of these merchants. It's hooked into all these O2O services. 
And that's just not the case. Uh, if you take it out and try to use it in another market, it's just WhatsApp, right? So I agree. So I agree, and I think it's a question of, again, why? What was the, what were the market dynamics in China that caused that? And I would say, if there's not an advertising market and you're trying to grow, you look at well, what else can you? What other technology? What other um, Service or what other transaction you can, can you provide to your users? Facebook doesn't have to do that. Facebook right. has a multi-hundred billion dollar ad market that they can that they can go attack. Tencent didn't have that, right. so it was it was really forced by just the market dynamics to go out and find other transactions that it could bring together, and it did that brilliantly. Absolutely, it absolutely has. Without giving away any trade secrets, though, uh, what, what would you identify as some of the big blind spots for U.S.-based investors who are now looking at China? Um, what do they tend to miss from not being really on the ground and mingling with the Chinese consumers and with the tech nerds? What, what do you think are the big blind spots for us? So the big blind spots in venture um, tend to be the not understanding the pace of things on the ground. So if you're looking at the startup uh, universe that I typically have have been exposed to um, here in the here in Silicon Valley or here in the U.S. People work at a certain rate and they work hard. They don't work as hard as people do in China. So you ha- we so for example we would not back an entrepreneur from Qiming or an entrepreneur from the U.S. that came to China. We would not back them upon arrival. They need to be there for a couple of years to get beaten up. <laughs> in that in that market to actually understand this is the reality of competing and working in China. Right. You know, there there is a different pace, uh, different intensity to that. Right. So I think people miss that if they're not if they're not forced to see it all the time. At a kind of higher level, um, there's this myth that China is a central planned economy, which I find quite funny because <laughs> if you think about uh, like with AI, they say, well, you know, the five year plan had AI in it. Well, the five year plan is backfilling for the success of Sensatime, MegV, and a whole series of other companies. So it's basically coming in behind that saying, this is important to China. It wasn't that anyone went to those CEOs of those companies or Jack Ma at Alibaba and said, create these firms for the good of China. Right. So if you're looking for leadership, you don't look to the government. Government's, it's a lagging indicator. It's a lagging yeah, indicator. Yeah, right, you know, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's very insightful. Um, that's totally true. People definitely get that wrong. And then the other part, the other part is whether it's a... Uh, planned economy or just very, very good at experimentation. So again, you can look at Shenzhen as one of the greatest experiments in the world in the last 30 plus years. Right. Again, spectacularly successful. Very hard for another country to be able to to pull that off. Well, and it sits have on the entire supply chain. Exactly. I mean, the whole value chain practically. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. But you also look at Alibaba and Tencent with payments. Right. They let Alibaba and Tencent go after the banks. They didn't understand that they would completely gut the banks from the standpoint of new account formation. I mean, when they when they launched their payment systems and Tencent did the Hong Bao, still ninety five percent or more of the bank of the account formation for banking in China was done with the large banks. Now ninety five percent is done with Alibaba, Tencent, and other startups. They didn't anticipate that. Right, but that is that age over now, where it was okay to ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. I mean, I I, I think that the, the the sense for most people is that we're in a different time now, where that kind of you know fast and loose no longer flies. Um, I think that that's a mistake mm. because 
again, I guess if you're the if you're in the U.S. and you're competing with China, you might hope that that's true, <laughs> uh, because the you typically get the speed of, again you get the speed of things wrong in China. Um, so on enterprise software, I don't think the government's going to dictate standards. I think that it's going to be market driven. And right now, the most valuable enterprise software company in China is worth one twentieth that of Oracle. The largest pharmaceutical company is worth one eighth that of Johnson Johnson. You just go down the list in internet stuff. Turns out, oh, Tencent, Face, Tencent, Alibaba are roughly the equivalent of the number four or five player in the U.S. In almost every other sector, the major player in the U.S. is some significant multiple higher right. than China. That's going to converge. Those gaps are going to narrow. Hmm. And so, again, it's not going to happen because the government is dictating. It's going to be because those companies are going to experiment, and they're going to innovate, and they're going to do it very, very quickly. So let's dig deeper into this this speed thing. I mean, I've long postulated that, that – it's part of that has to do with just sort of the attitudes across society toward technology in China and in the United States. That there's a, a really different posture toward not just tech itself, but also toward the future. Uh, that in America, if you look at our science fiction, there's a certain fear. I mean, you look at it, especially here in the United States since the 2016 election, we, you know, we had the disappointments of the Arab Spring and social media was supposed to bring down authoritarian regimes. Nah. Uh, we hasn't, had, hasn't quite worked no, out hasn't that worked way. out that way, right? We we were you know, um, it was supposed to uh, to to be you know the the what was it? and then there was the Snowden revelations and there's this general sort of hostility or fear of a technophobia almost that that kind of it's outside of the valley, but the rest of the country there is a lot. There's a lot of concern about kids spending too much time on screens. You don't see that as much in China. You, you can't even have that conversation because the parents are too busy on their own screens. <laughs> well, I think that's again. Tencent was brought in by the government years ago and told to reduce the amount of time kids could spend on screens. So, so I think the games, games specifically, games, yeah. games yeah. in particular, people were people were told quite uh, dramatically. If you look at the user generated con- content, short form video, etc., that's exploding in China at uh, you know at very very uh, you know very high rates. Um, so, if you're asking what is, is there a different attitude toward technology? I mean, I feel like. You know, it's hmm. it's it's there in the political culture. Even you know the, the, you have such a technocratic society in China. It's there in you look at Chinese science fiction, for example. It's not all just it's it's not all dystopian. It's it's still kind of there's this unembarrassed embrace of of tech driven bright futures. I mean, I saw it every day when I go to work at Baidu. Right, I mean these kids. These, Miserable conditions, you know. Yeah, just and, the ant, two the ant hour farm conditions. <laughs> yeah, two hour commutes and on the damn subway, and then just coming out like you know, squishing against each other. But then just sort of we're walking into this building, kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed, and just ready to change the world. It was just, uh, you know, I think that. So I think that that's right, and I think it's it's. Uh, I'm not a, a sociologist to look at kind of the underpinnings of some of that, but I think part of it is again how how rapidly. Technology has come on the scene in China. I mean, the U.S. kind of grew up. You had Intel. You had all these large players. The U.S. is, is has got was familiar with tech for a very very long time. Sure. Um, and what what tech has gone, has done in the U.S. part of the part of the uh, pushback now has been it disappointed our expectations around being open, free. We we thought we could trust technology. Right. Turns out that technology is still controlled by people. 
what China has is people still suck. <laughs> people are not. No, you can't always count on people. Right. But um, you, I think you can long term, you can count on human nature to be good. But that's a that's a longer discussion. <laughs> um, if you think about China, what's happened is all technology has done so far for China is improve the, their quality of life. Now, it'll be interesting when you look forward five to 10 years and you're looking at the social credit system, you're looking at all the other things the government's putting in place. Is that going to continue? At, until this point in time, you can get cars cheaper, you can, you know, your housing is, is better, your quality of life is better because of technology. So they're still in the early, what I'd call early stages of really adopting. They have yet technology. to be disappointed by it. <laughs> have, yet to, have yet to be disappointed by it. Right now, it's all in lock, perfect lockstep. I mean, your life gets better, your devices get better, and it's, it's all, right. that's, that's, that's the basis of, of why I think that it, it is so optimistic right now. Uh, but it's also, there's something kind of self-fulfilling about it. You know, they, they well, pour energy into it because they, they, they realize they get good returns on it. Well, when you, when you go back to when we moved to, when we moved to uh, China in 2005, one of the things, it's hard to, hard to express it in a um, quantitative way. But there was a sense of walking around, meeting with entrepreneurs. Everyone felt it was their time. Yeah. Everyone felt that that society, that society was ready and you could look at it because the low base it was coming off of. You could look at the access to information. Um, and the society was much more open in terms of new information coming in, being adopted. Um, things move very, very quickly. And so it's only in the last few years that I think, you know, the government's becoming a little too restrictive in terms of, you know, the uh, access that people there have to information. And you're starting to see pushback. You know, against that. Yeah. Um, but for that 10 year period, 2005 to 2015, it was very, very powerful. Mm-hmm, mm, absolutely. You know, the other thing that people are always, you know, crapping on when it comes to China. And look, you know, both of you were, you know, working on the, that SoftBank fund back in the late 90s. And you'd already heard it back then, even how Chinese were somehow incapable of innovation, right? And, and how it, it's all these, these same set of factors that you just said, you know, it's lack of access to, to free flows of information. But the, the one that you, you, I've heard you talk about this before, they always go after the, Pedagogy. They always say, "Oh, it's the 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 Chinese school system and its emphasis on rote memorization, and uh, the lack of critical thinking skills somehow." Mm. But I've heard you talk about this before. Um, you you had some interesting data points where you pushed back against that claim about about uh, critical thinking. Can, can you can you repeat those? Yeah, there was a study that was done um, between Stanford and uh, China East Normal University, where they looked at the critical thinking capability of incoming freshmen, mm-hmm. and they looked at particular schools. These were not average schools, so these were good schools in China, great schools in Shanghai, and great schools in the United States. Right. The stu- Chinese students coming out of high school from those schools were. 18 to 24 months ahead in critical thinking of their American counterparts. Uh-huh. Where, they, where the Americans caught up was in college. Right. And so because in, <laughs> when you're in college in China, the professors are far less open-minded about being challenged. <laughs> and so the whole, yes, there was a lot of rote memorization, but there was also a great deal of critical thinking that went on that was embedded in those students. So what we found over time was if someone came into Qi Ming, if you took a graduate from a top university in the U.S. and a graduate school in China, the university student in the U.S. would be ahead. Yeah. Six, 12 months later, they're the same. Huh. So the raw material put in the same environment 
equalizes very, very quickly. Does it but, equalize the other way too? I mean, where you would have, for example, uh, somebody who graduated from a Chinese high school and then went to and did their undergraduate education in the States, presumably they'd be, you know, kind of ahead of their American counterpart. Uh, and the American catches up uh, sort of in the same way. Well, I think that someone coming out of the top high schools in China is every bit as capable as someone coming out of any of the top schools of the United States. Um, And their motivation, their ability. See, the thing that the Chinese have been able to do over history, they've been able to endure pain. Right. So so if you if (laughs) you put bitterness, (laughs) I mean, they, they well, and it's and it's something that now when you suddenly have that lifted and your life is getting better. But you have that ability to work really, really hard over an extended period of time. I'm not knocking how Americans are. Americans work far harder today than they did before, yeah. actually, statistically, yeah, no, yeah. in terms of hours worked, et cetera. But if you're simply looking at what's happening in that society, a lot of it was a lot of suffering for a long period of time, a lot of hard work with no benefit. Now there's a benefit. Right. And the other thing, that, the other thing on the pedagogy, this whole idea that China couldn't innovate was really quite brain dead to me because innovation is not magic. Invention, you could argue, is magic. So invention requires you to focus on something for extended periods of time. And the difficulty in doing that in China was you couldn't hold teams together for extended periods of time Hmm. because as that market started to take off, everyone wanted to go do their internet startup. You had people people chasing the IPOs, chasing the dollars. No big surprise. Well, now – you actually start to see invention in China as well. But the innovation came from taking an invention and making it better, making it better, making it better, till pretty soon it doesn't look anything like the original invention. Right. And that, that kind of innovation, China is extraordinarily good at. Mm-hmm. Why was it that even in, back in, in the late 90s, when you, know, you would already start hearing, oh, you know, C to C doesn't stand for you know, consumer to consumer, it stands for copy to China back then. It's always that same joke you'd hear at every damn tech conference. But why was there this expectation that China should have been innovative? Back then, I mean, it was, you know, the, in, in 99 or, or so, I, I would probably guess that the per capita GDP was less than $1,000. Urbanization rate was probably less than 37 or 8%. Uh, you compare comparable countries back then, where were all the people clamoring to, to see Brazilian or Argentine innovation or Turkish or Mexican innovation? Why was there this expectation on China that it should be like, you, you know, you know what well, the expectation is all in hindsight, right? I mean, back then, but even back then, I mean, I'd hear it all the time. Right? Back then, the, the, the assumption was, it'll take China decades to catch up. It didn't. Right. It took a decade. Mm-hmm. decade and a half maybe in most cases you can still find areas they still can't build a uh, sophisticated combustion engine drivetrain to save their life which is why no one buys chi- traditional chinese cars outside of china right. but electric vehicles very simple drivetrains so when you start to look at these complex systems avionics that their their internal uh, aerospace industry or, or uh, airplane industry now you know five six seven eight years behind. So there's a whole series of things. This goes back to project management, product management that are not necessarily skills that that society has fully developed. But when you're looking at business model innovation, and you have a very large pool of customers, and then you add some money to that. That mix is what happened when the venture capital market exploded in 2006. Right, right. You, you had those three creative, critical critical elements uh, come together. So 
what worries you these days with this new push for decoupling? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, or a lot of things worry you, but, but what push? What, what really worries you the most about this push that you hear in some tech sectors for so-called decoupling? So I will say something a little harsh, which is I don't ever hear anything about decoupling from thoughtful people. Um, you know, to me, the idea that you're going to take these two countries and you're going to force them into parallel, different parallel paths is really ludicrous. And um, I don't have a lot of uh, uh, you know, belief that that's uh, viable. I think you could certainly say we're not going to share technology. So let's pick on Huawei since that's they're kind of the poster child for a lot of this. Sure. I think it's fair to say, you know what, if Huawei, if the Chinese government will not let Cisco, Ericsson, Nokia freely sell in China, you don't have to let Huawei sell in the U.S. But let's not pretend that it's about technology, about 5G or leadership in something. What it is is it's about market access. And what China has done is China has really dragged its feet on market access. Sure. And they've made it very difficult. for. So that's what we should be pushing back on. We shouldn't be giving a company a death penalty threatening to not sell them chips because – of the market access issue. If you want to address the China-U.S. issue, I think you have to address it at that government-to-government issue. And weaponizing the supply chain is very dangerous. Do you think that's true across the board? I mean, right now, we've seen a lot of companies, including portfolio companies of yours, like Megvi, put on this entity list uh, for their uh, alleged participation. I think in, in the case of some of these companies, it's pretty clear on uh, working in, on the surveillance technology that's being deployed, you know, for what we can all, un, uh, you know, unhesitatingly call an atrocity in Xinjiang. Yeah, the MIGV situation, so way, way under 1% of their revenue comes from uh, Xinjiang, and they actually have now proven to Human Rights Watch that they should not be on that list. But we're at a war with nuance in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah. So, so no one's interested in hearing the story of how a Chinese company really wasn't, really doesn't deserve to be treated the same as a company that looks like them, like Sense Time. Right. And so when, you, when you've lost the ability to have those detailed conversations, you know, some companies are going to get hurt, uh, get hurt with that. Um, Do you think that your participation, uh, that they, the fact that they have American capital in them, has made them a little more politically astute? about uh, situations like this? I mean, that MegV maybe is a little smarter than some of the other companies. I think after the fact. After the fact. I, d- I, don't, think it, I don't think people really anticipated. Um, I think they didn't anticipate two things. They didn't anticipate having, for the first time in our history in the United States, you have a zero-sum president. Hmm. We don't have zero. We have not had zero-sum presidents before. No, we have People not. always looked at the bigger pie in terms of their philosophy. The current administration does not think that way, and that's different. So what that does, it creates a low-trust administration running into a low-trust society and system in China. Low-trust entities rubbing up against each other rarely end well. That's where the the prisoner's dilemma never comes up with a good solution. Yeah, it's it's a terrible situation. What I was getting at with uh, with this question of whether your participation is – because one of the things that I think has come – that it's been so good – uh, of, from, from this three plus decades of really close interaction and cross pollination between, um, American investors and American technologists and their Chinese counterparts, 
their investees and, and the whole tech scene. There is so many best practices do get shared. We talked earlier on about ethics as one of the things that's been sacrificed. We're not having these these conversations about standards, about interoperability, about about um, ethics in different in spheres of technology. And we really should be because it's China and the United States that are at the forefront of all these things, whether we're talking about CRISPR or or uh autonomous vehicles or advanced robotics. These are the areas where these conversations should be having. And there used to be an obvious great channel for that to be happening, uh, it went, you know, that nexus between Sand Hill Road and Shenzhen or in Beijing. Uh, I, I worry about that. I, mean, I, I worry about that as well. I mean, you have over 80% of the world's venture capital is consumed by those two those two countries, you know, 95% of all the co- private companies in the world worth over a billion dollars are in those two countries. You just go down the list. There is no meaningful product, uh, mo- sorry, no meaningful problem on earth that you don't need both these countries to cooperate to solve. And it's a tragedy Amen. that so much of this is pushing things apart. Um, so much of the, you know, the dialogue now is pushing things apart. So what worries me about the U.S. is that the U.S. should be focused on what will make the U.S. stronger. One of the big discussions, well, China is going to be the world's largest economy. Morally, China should be the world's largest economy. Right. It has 1.4 billion people. They have four times as many people as the U.S. It should be larger. Per capita, it certainly won't catch up any time in my lifetime, maybe not even my kid's lifetime. Right. So you should be focused on what makes you the best economy not the largest economy. And this goes back to that whole idea of simply a, a, the wrong lens to look at this problem through. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. That's very, very well put. Uh, there are real challenges, though, right? I mean, I, I don't think that anyone can fail to recognize that uh, Chinese technologies can pose national security risks. Um, how do you think that we should be handling that? Um, for example, there are some some areas of technology where we are appreciably ahead of China right now. Uh, I don't think they can do, for example, um, seven nanometer scale chip design right now where we can. Uh, what should we be doing? Should we be actively trying to protect those technologies in which we have a meaningful advantage? So so that's an interesting question. So I, I wound up being involved with some discussions in D.C. about a month ago where the conversation was around how to restrict access to U.S. technology by Chinese firms. And the discussion ranged from do you prohibit the sale of the product? In other words, a chip. Do you prohibit the sale of a chip? And my point on that is, no, because you want them using U.S. products. Because right. if they're using the products, right. well, you, it's dependency, it's business. And, oh, by the way, it helps you understand what the capabilities are. If you completely divorce yourself from this and say you don't get to buy the products, I doubt that they won't find a solution somewhere. I think they will. And then you're going to be completely blind as to what those capabilities are. Now, if you said, if you got ASML from the Netherlands and you got the Germans, you got Tokyo Electron, and you said, okay, we're going to license on a very particular basis these kind of semiconductor technologies, I'm still not thinking that that's the best idea, but that's a more palatable idea to me than simply saying you don't get the product. And therefore, it's like ZTE, you have a death sentence in 30 days, you can't you know, you can't stay in business. So I think that we're going to have to, uh, you know, balance that. Um, how do you treat AI? Well, AI, because I mean, AI is not like a chip. No. Right? And so if the 50, if you took the 50 brightest AI workers in the world today, 15 are in China, 35 are in the U.S. 
that's probably going to remain that. It's got to be a couple in Canada. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm just saying, you know, again, round sure. numbers, you know, I, I, round numbers, you have the West, and you have the folks in the West, you have the folks in China, you have some in Japan, et cetera. But we're, we don't have a monopoly. The U.S. does no. not have a monopoly on intelligence. And it used to be you d- could not put the intelligence together with the market opportunity with the money. Now you have the intelligence, the market opportunity, and the money coming together. So for the first time, China is capable of doing the same things that the U.S. did over the last 30 or 40 years. It might take them a little longer. But shouldn't we be focused on let's, let's, set, let's agree on some guidelines, you know, the AI guidelines. Let's agree on the CRISPR guidelines. Let's agree on these different ways of approaching the market. Otherwise, I think that uh, you know, we put, you know, the U.S. puts itself as a real disadvantage. Who should be convening that conversation, though? Well, I think people are starting to. Um, this year, uh, you know, I organized an event in Montana that had about 50 people that are very focused on things relative to U.S. and China. That was a good discussion. Susan Shirk and the team down at UCSD you know, had a good discussion. This Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing of the big, of the big events. That one does by far the best job of putting Chinese together in a room with Westerners and having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always pleasant. I mean, and you don't always like what you hear, but at least there's a conversation. The administrations don't seem to be having that conversation except around tariffs. And, I mean, to a <laughs> it's uh, to, it's exasperating. It, it, it's exasperating. Exasperating oh. is exactly the right word oh, I would use. <laughs> Gary Rochelle, what a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it's just been so so great to have you on the show. Uh, I, I don't think I found myself in perfect agreement with someone quite as much uh, as I have with you today. Let's move on now to the recommendation segment of the show. But first, I want to remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can show your support is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. I want to draw your attention in particular to this feature that we've been doing for a couple of months now on the website called Signal. It's in-depth explainers and trackers on things like the Democratic candidate's statements so far on China policy or the high-speed rail network or how you use WeChat or the horrific social re-engineering project in Xinjiang and a whole lot more. So check it out at signal.subchina.com. Okay, on to recommendations. Gary, you can go first. Well, so for recommendations, recent books um, I've been reading. So one is old. Um, I've just been rereading Atlas Shrugged. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is quite quite interesting in the given the current political environment. Um, it's an it's an interesting book to to actually read. And I don't remember. I think I convinced myself I read it before, but I wasn't sure I actually read the entire uh-huh. book. It's twelve hundred pages long. Well, it's sort of the Bible of Silicon Valley, right? I mean, uh, well, libertarians would argue with you that Silicon yeah. Valley has moved far away from the libertarian model, uh, you know, in that book. But that's a that's a different, uh, longer discussion. Um, <laughs> also read Factfulness by Hans Rosling, because what that book did is it points out how little you know about the world. And um, he did this where uh, they give a series of questions to CEOs and uh, politicians, and they they get the percentage wrong. They get the percentage right is lower than that of chimpanzees, random, randomly answering the questions. And uh, so, for example, if you ask kids K through 8 around the world, what percentage of kids are in school, the answer is over 90%. If you ask girls, everyone says, well, it's 34. No, it's 88%. So the world, the world overall is better than we somehow think it is, but that doesn't move, move us away from the problems that we have. Sure. 
That's uh, yeah, kind of in line with that Steven Pinker book. Uh, I don't know if you you caught that. Where he, there's a lot of that, that same sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, we, we probably imagine that murder rates have increased, or that uh, yeah, exactly. Well, there's another book, Sapiens. Yeah, that, that that's come yeah. out that Yuval also Harari, Yeah, yeah, that also has a really interesting. You know, that's another interesting read. It is, yeah. I, I have recommended that on the show before. It's, it's, he's fascinating. The guy, he's, he's, um, the, the, the book that he did after, after Sapiens is not as good. It actually ends up sort of rehashing a lot of the same arguments that he makes in Sapiens. It's called Homo Deus, but, uh, it's, it's also worth, probably worth reading. So mine, mine is, um, is for a television show. Uh, it's produced by this guy named Damon Lindelof, uh, who, hmm. who is from Lost and, um, <laughs> and, and the, uh, The Leftovers, which were two of my, two shows that I really liked, but he's just really gotten it down with this new show on HBO called Watchmen. Yes. It's fantastic. It. it is fantastic. Oh my God. I mean, it, it is it's fantastic. Just, it's, it's, I was talking to my brother about it yesterday, and, and I think the thing that I like about it is it just doesn't insult your intelligence by explaining things to you. It just sort of puts out enough for you to draw the connections and, and, and fill in what you need to in the story. It's just never, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's a really great approach to storytelling. And yeah, just, wa- Watchmen's on our list of, of things when you, when you have some time to get caught up. Yeah, uh, there's another fantastic. show, Succession. Yeah, Succession is, I've heard, uh, that's, I'm going to do that at some, at some point. It's sort of loosely based Based on the Murdochs, but then yeah, no, it, it, it's funny because it's Dallas, it's Dallas Dynasty and the Murdochs all combine into a <laughs> all combine into a show. But you know, it's an interesting one of the big trends, one of the big changes that I would not have anticipated is this explosion in media. Yeah, you know yeah. the the content the hundreds of billions going into content creation now. Um, I would not have seen that happening ten years ago. Yeah, it's this age of peak TV we're in. It's just great. I, I mean, I'm very grateful for it because uh, I've. I'm always on the lookout for good recommendations for new shows to binge as I, I fly enough that, you know, I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Gary. That was great. Uh, and what, what a pleasure to talk to you. Um, let's get you back on the show again soon and we'll talk more about, about, uh, U.S. policy, uh, cause I think you've got lots to say on that. Thanks, Kaiser. Go Seahawks. Okay. <laughs> that's tonight, right? You that's, guys, that's today. <laughs> all right. Today. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta, the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China and our news family member, Strangers in China. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.